All right, for those who weren't here in the first hour, well, you missed a lot. Okay, but let me try to explain quickly where we are so everybody's on the same page. About three, about two weeks ago, maybe, maybe it's two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, um, I uh, started a, po- a podcast episode by I asked everyone to give me three things that young people need to be taught uh, about in the church in 2022. The reason I asked this question is because I'd come across a series of messages from a youth conference held in Indiana. According to those who preached at the youth conference, it's the most influential youth conference in the world, and it's been so for the last 50 years. So if the most influential youth conference is preaching certain messages, that would tell me this is what young people need to hear in 2022, but I wanted the listeners to tell me what they thought young people should be taught in 2022. The emails have been very, very, very interesting, I can tell you this. Do you think any of the emails agree? Yeah, you got to love that, right? Because that just shows you the, uh, the, the role of a pastor, right? That no matter what the pastor does, what? It's going to be wrong according to someone, right? That's just like uh, that. Man, that, that reality is so hard being a pastor, realizing that no matter what you do, someone's going to disagree it, oh, you don't even understand how maddening that can be. But that's the way it works, right? So not, not, none of the emails agree. But the reason I asked is because if I decided to start reviewing the sermons from this youth conference uh, in Indiana to hear what they thought should be preached. And all I can say is after reviewing all the sermons that we've reviewed so far, we still have a long ways to go. I can't even tell you what was preached because I don't even think I understand any of the points of any of the sermons because I don't know if there is a point because it's crazy what was ha- what's happening in these sermons. Just crazy. Now, the previous ones, I really was left like, I don't even really know how to offer a critique because I don't even really know the point. But the one I reviewed last night, oh, that one kept me up all night. That's why I've got five-hour energy up there because I could not sleep. I was, oh, I was so bothered by it because they gave a specific way of reading and understanding a text in the book of Acts that I was just like, hey, I just don't know what to do with this. I just don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. And, rem- and remember my, my perspective on preaching. I will listen to sermons from anyone. I don't care how sound they are or how unsound they are because I love hearing how different people approach the text because that's what challenges me to reconsider my position. If I only listen to people who agree with me, then I will always think that I'm right, right? Like uh, one of the things I think should happen in every church is you should disagree, like, because if all I ever say is what you already think, then we all walk around thinking that we all think the same. Like, there, there, there's got to be, there's got to be, like, tension. There's got to be tension, I think, sometimes in preaching, right? I got to challenge you. I got to think, I wonder, I think the people probably think this way. So I need to just challenge that thinking just on principle, right? Nobody agrees with that? You're like, okay. Why is everybody on this side of the sanctuary? <laughs> what is it? This entire side of the sanctuary, there's no one here. Everyone's on this side, okay? I guess that's easy for eye contact, right? Okay, because everyone's on the same side, okay? All right, that's, I just realized nobody's on this side of the church. Everyone is on one side of the sanctuary. Okay, all right. I'll have to take a picture and show people online. Everyone's on one side, okay? All right, so that's just odd, okay? All right, but that's irrelevant to the sermon. But I think the, the point is, is that We have to be challenged. So for me, I view every sermon, every Bible study guide, every devotional, I don't just view it as good or bad. I view it as an opportunity. You give me a perspective, and then guess what I can do? I can, no, no, not challenge it. I can ignore it and then go figure it out on my own, right? In other words, it challenges me. It's not about me challenging it. It's about it challenging me, because it forces me to study. Now, here's the, here's the problem in the church. The pastor challenges, the people disagree, but guess what they almost rarely never do? Hey, pastor, here's my month of study on this subject. Could we sit down and go through it? Because clearly I got a strong disagreement, but here's my study. Does anybody ever show up with the study? They show up with what? You're wrong. I'm out. Okay, well, that's great. Guess what I can't do? 
can't fix that. Now the people, typically the people who do the study and disagree, guess what typically happens? Usually there's like, there's, there's usually more agreement, right? Because if they've done study and I've done study, that means there's probably a lot of concepts we have both eliminated. So then our disagreement tends to be smaller because both have done extensive study. But nobody wants to study. Everyone wants us to disagree. And that there's nothing more maddening from my perspective. Look, if, if you disagree and you've done the study, my perspective is, well, I, I've got respect, Right? Because they worked. But if there's no study, my perspective tends to be, well, what am I supposed to do? Right? Like, what am I supposed to Bobby worked in construction for how many years? I mean, like, you know, he's old as Noah, so I mean, like, I mean, I, mean, I don't know, but I mean, a long time, Right? I didn't say Methuselah, right? I said Noah, so that's see, I'm not making you too old. But a long time. Now, if we're somewhere in a construction situation, and I'm like, Bobby, what are you doing? You're, I don't know anything about anything dealing with construction, but let's say I just read a book really quick and learned some terminology, right? And I'm like, that board and that measurement or whatever it means, or I don't know, tools, whatever those, that stuff, Right? I learned the terminology, and I started telling Bobby that he was wrong. I have a tendency to think he probably would be extremely dismissive of me extremely quick. Right? Yes. And I th- is there may be some, some other person in the church who may have been in construction, maybe not as long as Bobby, but maybe knows enough about it that Bobby may listen to them over me. True? Same thing can happen in theological study, right? You spend years studying theology and you're kind of like, why why is the the one studying theology so dismissed? Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is when I listened to this sermon, I was like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Now, I can just be dismissive of it, but I try to never be dismissive of it because maybe, what's the maybe? Maybe. Maybe they're right. So then what, what should I do? Study it. That's, you see the point that I'm trying to make? Like, in preaching, when you hear it, you've got, you can't, it's easy to be dismissive of something, but I see it as an opportunity for my own study. So I've been up all night going, what do I do with this? Because I've never heard this perspective. But I'm not telling you what the perspective is, because that would be too easy for me to say, here's their perspective, it's wrong. What am I trying to do? Helping you figure out what, I want to hear what you think the right answer is because maybe your perspective will be different than the other perspectives and then maybe we'll figure it out. Now, the text in question is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So what I'm trying to do is whatever conclusion I come to about Acts chapter 16 I want to be able to bring my conclusion to this text and I want to have a notebook full of notes where I can say, I've studied it. Does that make sense? All right. Here we go. Now, we've looked at the context, but we don't have time to review that. We've started working in Acts chapter 16. The text is verse 16 to 20. The title of the sermon was Satan's Hopes. What Satan's ho- Satan hopes for, or his different hopes that he has, which is kind of just, to me, a bizarre title, because guess what is never mentioned in the text? Satan, or what he hopes for. In fact, the one time hope is mentioned, whose hope is it referred to? You can look at it. What verse is the hope mentioned to? Yeah, which verse? Verse 19, everyone look for those who weren't here in the first hour. The master's hopes. Yeah, about their gain. So it has nothing to do with Satan's hope. So already I'm baffled by why the pastor gave it that title. So what title have I given this section? A damsel possessed, right? With a, which is a play on the idea of a, a damsel in distress, right? And why did I call it a damsel possessed? It's directly from the text. And where should your titles always come from when you title a chapter or a paragraph? 
from the text. Why is that? Because the title should always capture the essence of the text. But guess what sermons do? They don't worry about capturing the essence of the text because the sermon, in many cases, keeps you from the text. That's a whole, that goes back to criticism I have on much preaching, all right? So we started working on this, all right? So let's go through. I hope Sarah has everything written down because I, I, everyone gave their, thought, their, their perspective, so we're going to have to go through all of them. But here we go. We've got to go quick. Everybody ready? And it came to pass. The most important thing from that phrase, just for those who weren't here, is it seems to show that this text is just being recorded in some kind of chronological order, not some great spiritual connection to what proceeded before it. All right? It came to pass. And it came to pass when? They're going to prayer and something happens. And what happens? A certain damsel possessed with a spirit. Now, for our illustration purposes, Emma is that damsel who is demon-possessed because a damsel is what? A young woman who is unmarried. And as far as we know, Emma is not married, as far as we know, right? So we have our demon-possessed person back there in the back. She was supposed to act certain things out, but we didn't have a chance to rehearse, okay? So, there we go. Now, she is possessed by what? A spirit of divination. Now, this is critical. What is divination? It's like fortune telling. I want everyone to understand this. To me, this is the whole, like, remember in every passage, what do I always say you have to define? The hermeneutical, look at it. Even demon possessed, she knows theological answers, right? She has, this demon has been taught well, okay? You need hermeneutical key. You got to figure out what the hermeneutical key is. I think this is the hermeneutical key. Because it sets up the whole scene. If she's possessed by the spirit of divination, and divination basically amounts to fortune-telling, what, what happens with fortune-telling? It's profitable! Because fortune-tellers don't go around telling fortunes for free. How do we know that it's profitable in this context? Look at the passages that talk about money being made because of her fortune-telling. What verse? 16 and 19. So in two verses, the money is mentioned. What, what is the money based off of? The spirit of divination. Correct? You see why I think this is the hermeneutical key? So we have to establish hermeneutical key. Once we establish hermeneutical key, we're good to go. Right? She's making money. Now what's interesting is this damsel, in some translations, is referred to as a slave. Why is she called a slave, according to the text? So, well, she has masters. So some translations don't put the word slave, but we can, other translations do because it can be derived from the text. Think of it this way. She has two masters. She's a slave in two ways. She's a slave first physically because she has earthly masters who control her. Second, she is a slave because she is demon-possessed. What does the word possessed mean? To have, to hold, to control. She is controlled, she is owned by earthly masters and spiritual masters. The earthly masters are benefiting from her spiritual possession because she can somehow tell the future. We don't know how accurate or inaccurate, but clearly they're making money off her. Does that make sense? All right, so we have a, a slave girl who's demon-possessed by the spirit of divination. Well, that's verse 16. What else does 16 say? Is there anything else in 16 that we need to briefly review? I've got to hurry. That's it? Okay, don't skip the word soothsaying, right? Mention soothsaying in verse 16? Right? Now, soothsaying is basically another way of saying fortune-telling. Okay, so fortune-telling is mentioned twice. Think of Fortune-telling basically is mentioned twice, and the making money off of it is mentioned twice. This is why I think it's the hermeneutical key. So far, so good. Next verse. All right, she followed Paul. Now, ever, now for those who missed the first hour, pay close attention. Why did she follow Paul? We have, we have, uh, this is, I love Christianity. We have one verse, 
And how many different interpretations we came up with in less than an hour? Four. Why did she follow? What was uh, uh, answer number one? And you don't have to reveal the person who gave it. The master sent her. Her earthly master's like, hey, go follow Paul. What was the argument for why they would follow Paul? Because we've established in the context that Paul has basically gone viral. He's the influencer of the time. He's going from city to city to city. Everyone knows Paul. And guess what? If Paul goes into a city and a crowd forms, if you're making money of fortune telling, what do you need? A crowd. So go follow the crowd. Right. But th- this is the argument. She met them and she follows them. And it's almost like, hey, these are the, these are the influencers. Follow them. So far, that's view number one. View number two. Did we say the Holy Spirit or did we say, I don't think we, the, the evil spirit. The evil spirit is controlling her, telling her to go fall. So this is a, this is the demon spirit. Okay. All right. Now that's interesting because, yeah, I, we don't think it's the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, and now we could add a fifth interpretation, but we think this is the evil spirit. The evil spirit's making her fall. Now the people who said it's an evil spirit, guess what they did not provide us. And then you, and anyone can correct it who gave this. I don't think they provided a justification for it. Has anybody got a justification for why you think it's the evil spirit other than she's possessed by the spirit? Okay, all right. Number three. The, that she is being following because the spirit is leading her to contradict Paul. Number four. That she is following because she wants salvation. Those are four different views, all from the same verse. And I guess what? We've got new people here. We probably can expand this to six or seven or eight different views, but we won't go through that right now. Okay, I can't, I can't continue to expand it. Let me just tell you, as more, more people who come into the sanctuary, the more views we would get, which is sometimes maddening, but in some ways it, it cracks me up because it just shows you, you disagree with me, so what? 50 other people disagree with me. So it, it's, it's just, that's just kind of the way it works. All right, we got that? All right. Next verse. Or is that part of the same verse? Oh, yeah. Okay. She followed Paul, the same verse. We're in verse 17. And what does she say? Everyone read. What does she say? She cried saying, everybody read it with me. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. I don't know about you. That to me jumps out off the page and slaps me three times in the face. All right? Now, we need to figure out, this is where we ended the last hour, why is this her message? Why is this her message? And I I told you to think about it between Sunday school and now. I know you probably didn't, but here we go. Everybody ready? Give me number one. What is your thinking about why she is delivering this message, go. All right. Number one, she's mocking. Okay. Well, well, we'll get there. We'll go one at a time. All right. She's mocking. Hey, look, everyone. He supposedly follows the most high God, and he supposedly has the way of salvation. Is that, is that a mocking enough voice? Emma could probably do it better, right? She is the demon possessed. So what's the mocking tone that we should have? Did I, did I, did I capture it? Uh, I, I was pretty whiny. Okay, all right. All right. All right. Snarky. Okay, all right. So there's the, that's a mocking way. All right. That's, that's interesting. Number two. Second reason she's doing this. Oh, now see, this goes back to the pre- how we interpret the previous verse. That's very good. Yeah, that's very good. Okay. Okay. So the, oh, okay. Robert's going in an interesting direction. Robert's going in an inter- interesting direction. I'll give, someone, I'll give someone else an opportunity before we go with, we follow Robert's way of thinking because a lot there to unpack. Anybody else? Come on. You got to do something with it, okay? Imagine you're in hermeneutics class and you're not leaving. You're getting a zero for the semester if you don't give me an answer, okay? I need an answer. I need you a 
firm, authoritative answer. Why did she say what she said? Okay. Why would the demons want her to possess that truth? Okay. All right. Bobby's perspective is they have to say this. All right. So this is, there's nothing more to see here than the demons have to do this. It's out of their control. All right. All right. So number one, it's mocking. Number two, it's just the demons who do, or the demon who does not have the ability to not do this, has to do this. Okay. All right. Number three. We got two so far. Oh, come on. We got to be able to, we got, we have more people here. We, we should be able to come up with like about 50 here. All right. Any, anything else? You know, I, you know, I do love this from a preaching perspective, right? I do find it humorous because when, uh, when you're in the pew, you're not forced to come up with an answer, but the person in the pulpit has to come up with the answer. But the people in the pew who don't have to come up with the answer can quickly disagree with the answer, right? The pastor has to give an answer. Nobody in the pew is forced to, but the minute they hear what they don't like, they, they are free to disagree. Isn't that kind of an odd, weird world to be in as a pastor? Like, no, you've got to give the answer. We won't, but the minute we disagree, we'll tell you that you're wrong. That is somewhat a fascinating, fascinating way. All right, anybody got a different one? We may have to go with Robert here. I think I, think I know the direction Robert's going, so I'm, I'm going to be very careful not to, to lead him anywhere. Any, anybody got a different one? No, come on, you're the demon-possessed girl. You've got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Okay, Emma doesn't even know why she's doing what she's doing, okay? Okay, would, would possibly follow up with what Bobby and, uh, and Stephen are saying. Okay, got to do it. Okay, all right. All right. Now, but you said the mocking, right? Or you said, so, so, oh no, you said the mocking. Okay, I can't remember. There's too many demon-possessed women here. Okay, all right, all right. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so far, so good. All right, Robert, let's unpack yours. Because Robert at least has taken, he's going a different direction, which is I always find the most unique when they go off the beaten path a little bit. Now, sometimes going off the beaten path means the car's getting ready to crash and we're getting ready to burst into flames. But it's always worth the risk, okay? All right, Robert, let me know what you're thinking here. Okay, all right, I'm going to summarize yours. Okay, I'll summarize it. Um, This may not be the exact way you're thinking, but I'm just going to summarize it. And to make it simple, that the masters have her going because somehow it's going to be profitable for them to be connected to this. Is that fair? Fair. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Now, I'm going to at least play this out a little. I'm going to expand it a little bit. Right? Because I, I like this direction. All right. We have already established clearly Paul is the viral sensation at the moment. Right? It's going from city to city to city to city, which builds notoriety. Clearly, we know that it, she's making money off the situation. And clearly, she's following Paul. Now, to follow Paul would make sense from a human perspective because that's where the crowds are. Right? Now, let me just throw this out there. From a human perspective, if she comes along, and here's a crowd, there's, there's a possible danger to their business model, right? If everyone starts following Paul and the Most High God and salvation, it could possibly lead to a massive reduction in profit because they're not listening to you anymore. They're listening to Paul and the God. But if you can, on one hand, say, hey, Paul is wonderful, his God is wonderful, his salvation is wonderful. That doesn't make you perceived as a threat to the message. It makes you sound like you're in agreement with the message, so you can follow Paul and stop by my place at 12 p.m. every afternoon to get your fortune read.
What do you think? That's, that's a theory. That's, uh, Robert's going in the direction, and I fleshed that out a little bit because I think, that, I think that there's a possibility in there. It just makes sense from a human perspective. What she does makes money. You think her masters would have... It clearly seems to imply her masters have some control over her. If they have no control over her, how is they the master? She'd be the master. So you'd think they'd be like, no, we're going to a different city. Correct? Now you say, no, no, no. the demons can... Uh, well, then why, do they, why are they referred to as her masters? They're the ones making money. So they have to have some control. So to me, it sounds like, no, follow him. And then by doing this, they ensure profitability. You can have Paul, you can have his God, and you can have fortune telling. Instead of contradicting it, go along with it. So far, so good? I, I think it's a possibility. What's a fourth way of, or is that, that's three. What's a fourth way of looking at it, you think? What's a fourth way of looking at it? Oh, I, I can go all day. We could be here till six o'clock tonight. I can keep, give you so many different possible ways of interpreting this. But I'll give you at least one more. Okay, possibly. I'll, I'll go with this direction, all right? That what she is doing is that basically Satan is like, oh man, we got a problem. We got a problem. Now this is where Satan gets interjected into the passage. Satan is sitting there going, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We got a problem. I know what we'll do. Because my hope is to keep people from salvation. So how can Satan's hope be met? What she's doing is telling everyone to follow Paul and not Jesus. That this is Satan's plot to keep everyone from Jesus by telling them to follow Paul. However, can anyone find a passage where Paul says to follow me? We find it. Don't, don't say yet. Find it. Tell me where it is. Okay, we're, we're, I think we're in the right general location. If you need to, just look up, follow me, and look for when it's not Jesus saying it. It won't be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It'll be somewhere in, well, Corinthians. <laughs> okay. See if you can find it. Where Paul says, follow me. He literally uses those phrases, that phrase. Or am I wrong? Is it not there? 1 Corinthians 4.16. We have to at least consider this, right? Is that, is that correct? 1 Corinthians 4.16. Once again, I would like to point out it was the demon-possessed girl who got to the passage first. Okay. Okay. Do I? I know. I'm trying to give the... I'm trying... See... I, you keep messing me up here, right? If I, I can make them all feel bad that they're being beat by a demon. I, I'm trying to make them feel bad. Work with me here. Okay. All right. Are, are you sure 1 Corinthians 4.16? Okay. Yeah, here we go. Right, I was reading 3.16 thinking Emma had just lied to me. Okay. All right. 1 Corinthians 4.16. Let's go to 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Philippians 3.17. Philippians 3.17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Now, if I'm going to preach, I, well, I know that, but I'm saying if I'm going to preach that this is a satanic plot to go, okay, guys, get them to follow Paul. That will never get to Christ. But that same Paul later on twice says, 
follow me, is that a contradiction? Because it seems that Paul thinks that if you're following him, he's going to lead you where? To Christ. I'm just saying, you have to at least throw it out there, don't you agree? All right, so we got four ways of reading this, all right? Let's go through these again, all right? Why is she saying these words? Mocking Paul. <laughs> Follow Paul. You know, Paul is preaching about Jesus. Yeah, just mocking, all right? Number two. Demons have to say it. They have no control. They just have to say this, right? Number three. It's, it, there's a plot here. Hey, hey, go say good things about Paul. So because if you say good things about Paul, the people won't be scared of you. They'll think that you're good to go. You think you're good to go, right? Okay. Fourth. Satan's plot to keep people from Jesus by telling them to follow Paul. Four thoughts. Does anyone, does anyone like one more than the other? All right. Okay, now, let's do this, because we always have to test it. Everyone got their theories. Justify your theory based off the passage. All right, which one would that support? Oh, you think the, uh, that the mo- it would support the mocking one, Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, obviously he knows she's possessed, yes. All right, so, so in a roundabout way, for this particular question, for this particular question, Janice is in a roundabout way saying that the hermeneutical key for this question is Paul's being grieved. All right, now, let's say that's the hermeneutical key, that Paul's being grieved, this is the hermeneutical key. What does that... Which conclusion do you feel him being grieved leads most to? Janice feels it's the mocking. Robert thinks it's the being used. Okay. What, what, has anybody got a different one? I don't know if I'd be grieved if Satan, if the demons have to do it. Why am I being grieved about it? They have to do it. What, what do you think? Okay, that's an annoyance. So in a roundabout way, everyone could take the grieved and all use it to support their view. Okay, is that what I'm getting? All right, so that's not, so I don't know if that's, if, if, if everyone can use the same hermeneutical key to come to their own conclusion, their, their, their justification, I don't know if that's much of a hermeneutical key because the hermeneutical key should unlock it, not just everyone use it, right? Like everyone can't use a different key to get into a door. It, okay, this is interesting. Do we believe the text indicates Paul feels sorry for her? Or Paul is irritated by the situation? Which do you feel the emotion is? Okay, oh, we got two who say that he feels sorry for her. That's interesting. Okay, based off what in the text makes you think that he feels sorry for her? Grieved. Is he, is he grieved because he feels sorry for her? Is he grieved? To silence her? Look up the word grieved in the, in the Greek. What does, it, what does it imply? Offended, worked up. This seems to see irritation and aggravation, not pity or sympathy. So the, the verbiage doesn't seem to say that he feels bad. It seems he feels irritated. It's only used two times. Right, obviously. Okay. A- any? I, I'm, I'm trying to let... So what, what else? Okay, let's do this. So It may help the girl, but... All I'm saying, we got to make sure that this is just very key. we got to stick with what the text tells us, right? It's easy to start bringing in other things, right? The text indicates that he's irritated and bothered 
not not any other emotion. Right. He seems to be irritated by the spirit, but it doesn't seem to indicate his emotions towards the girl. At least the verbiage doesn't. We could try to interpret the action, but the action seems more designed to do what? Silence the spirit. Agreed? All right. So let's do this. Let's look at the rest of the text. Right. Let, let me go through the basic elements of the text. Right. Let, so let's just see if this gives us any clues. All right. Here's the basic elements of the text. We have a demon possessed girl. Does everyone agree with that? She is possess- She is uh, owned by basically two entities. Entity number one is demonic and the other one is f- fleshly or earthly. Agreed. Right. Number three, the earthly powers are using her for profitability. That is mentioned two times. And I think she, it's referred that they're her masters two times. Agreed? So the text is focused on the fact that she is owned by these masters and they're making her money. And when this all goes wrong, they're upset about the money. Agreed? Now, based off that emphasis in the text, based off the emphasis in the text, does this indicate then possibly why she's doing what she's doing. Based off the, I mean, just what the text says. We, ever, we can speculate all day. On the text, it seems to imply to me that what's going on, they would not have her doing that which would be contradictory to making money. That doesn't make any sense to the text. Right? She has masters. If they can't control her, why does the text say twice that she has masters? She would be the one in charge. Not them. So that everything in the text says that she is owned by human masters who are using her to make money. So it seems odd that what she's doing here would go against them making money. It seems to me that it would infer that it's being used to keep making money. Right. Well, clearly they're not. They didn't, there's nothing in the text. They're like, Shh, stop talking. She keeps doing it day after day. The first person to get upset about it is not the, in the text is not the masters. It's Paul. Right? I mean, I'm just going with the text. We can, we, please make sure you understand that this is the hardest thing about interpreting biblical narratives. All right? Biblical narratives are so hard to interpret because of what reason? What, what makes biblical narratives so hard to interpret? Because, do I? Well, I'm going to give you another, uh, uh, I'm going to give you something that I think is the main reason it's so hard to interpret. It's almost impossible for us to not start reading everything into the text. We just start creating a, like we can't stop ourselves, right? We're like, here's the story. And the next thing we know, well, Paul's doing it for this reason. And this is going, and then and you're like, whoa, 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 slow. Stop everyone. Stop, stop, stop. What does the language say? We all do it. I'm guilty. of Everyone in this room is guilty of it. Because we see a story. You know this. Whenever you tell a story, either of a story you've heard or a story you experienced, what tends to happen in your stories? Things are added to, for what purpose? Storytelling. You make the story more funny, more dramatic. You add tension. You add conflict. What do we do when we preach narrative? Preacher, it's impossible for a preacher not to do so. One night, while everyone was out at war, David walked out on his roof and he saw a woman bathing. Now put that in the hands of a preacher. David should have been at war. Well, does the text say he should have been at war? But next thing you know, we're like, David messed up because he should have been at war. Does the text in any way condemn him for not being at war? You know how many sermons have condemned him for not being at war? Hundreds of thousands. Well, he walked out and saw her bathing. Now, because men preach the text and not women, she knew David came out on the roof every night at that time and she planned her bath just at the time to tempt David. They blame the woman. I like that. Oh, come on. All the men in here, you like that. 
That takes the responsibility off us. It's our woman should have covered up. Why is she bathing where people can see her? That woman, she's trouble. Oh, come on. The women laugh because they're like, that's a typical man. But that's what men do. Look, most of those, if women preached that text, it would be very different. Trust me. He would be, he would be the piece of garbage. Now, the women may, see, Emma's like, that's right, that's right. But I've heard she get blamed. I've heard men go, she wanted it just as much as he did. Everything in my text would indicate she didn't have a choice in the matter, which meets the definition of rape. But no preachers want to preach that it was rape, because how could we have a man who raped a woman who writes parts of the Bible? Well, it doesn't say that, but by everything, there's nothing that she would have any say-so in the matter. Right. So I'm just saying, you see, we have the narrative, and guess what we start doing? We'll get 50 different versions of the story. It's impossible not to do this. So we have this story here about Paul, and what do we start doing? Well, his motivation was this. His motivation was this. He did it for this reason. He did it for this reason. All I can go with is what does the text say? So I'm going to ask you again. Based off the language of the text. Why do you think she's doing what she's saying what she's saying? I'm saying based off the language of the text. We have, we can, everything in the text points to the money. Everything. Like, how many verses do we have? 16 to 20, how many verses is that? Five verses, right? And five verses, twice money is mentioned, and twice that she has masters. And the masters get upset. Not at what she says. Please note, there's nothing in the text that says they get mad at what she says. They're like, what are you doing? Stop, 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 stop. You can't say this. You're going to cut into our bottom line. It does express they get upset. When she stops talking, huh, that's a clue. Right? If illustration purposes, illustration purposes, not real, not promoting, but if Mr. Goodlett, every, about every 15 minutes during church, reached over and knocked his wife upside the head, right, boom, Bojana, shh, be quiet. Boom. Right? Every 15 minutes. I don't say a word. And then all of a sudden, Bobby turns around like, Mr. Goodlett, stop it. And then all of a sudden he stops it. And I come along going, what are you doing, man? Someone's got a controller. I can't hit her. Come on. That would seem to indicate that what am I bothered by? Him hitting her? Or Bobby stopping it? Because now Bojan is going to be out of control. Agreed? What would, that would indicate something, right? When I get upset. When do they get upset? After the demon is gone. After the message stops. The hope of making money. Meaning that the message seemed to fit in with what? The hope of making money. Does that make sense? Do you see how I derived that conclusion? How did I derive that conclusion? Based off the language of the text. Am I saying that I'm 100% right? No. What I'm saying is this is where the text leads me because what's the emphasis in the text? What, What do I believe the hermeneutical key is in the text? I believe the hermeneutical key is the kind of spirit she's possessed by. What is that? What what, what is it? Spirit divination, which is fortune telling. And what do I know from this fortune telling? Someone's making money off her. That's the emphasis, right? And she's being controlled. And the first time we see her saying something, what is she saying? What sounds like to be a good sermon. 
But yet the masters don't stop it. How do we know they don't stop it? No, how, what does it say about her giving this message? Look at the text. There's a clue. Did she do it once? Many days. Many days. Does the text say anything about the master's disapproval or shock or dismay at this message? Not once. But then it does recount when they do get upset. When the message stops. Now why would the message stopping make them mad? Because now if she seems to be in conflict with them, not going to make money. With Paul. If she's in conflict with Paul, are the people following Paul going to come to her? No. But if she can be connected with the Most High God and Paul and still do divination, then she seems to be Christianized her actions. Right? Think of it this way. A fortune teller across the highway with a pentagram on the sign and they call the place 666. Are a lot of you going to run over there after church? But a place over there called the Christian fortune telling. I, I, I hope you wouldn't. But Christians may be more like, well, it's Christian. Maybe God has given her the message about the future. You do know that within Christianity, there are those who do Christian tarot card readings. Yeah. Christian crystals, Christian spiritism, where you go to the grave of a dead person and receive their spirit or some kind of power from them. They've Christianized many of these practices. I've done, I don't know how many podcasts about all of it, right? So we've talked about it. That's what I think is going on here. Now, let's go back to the text because we got to finish this, all right? Oh, man. We got to finish this. All right? So, We've got the fact why she followed. We got possible an answer of why she gave the message. And then what do we have? Paul becomes grieved. Why would he be grieved by this? She's utilizing the truth of God for spirit for financial gain. She's using it. She's misusing it. She's taking truth and corrupting it for something other than spiritual truth. So what does Paul do? Tells the demon to go where? To leave, right? Everybody, what verse is that? 18, and and, uh, Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw the hope of their gain was gone, they caused, please note that, that maybe that's actually should be the hermeneutical key, but I still think the hermeneutical key is what she's doing because we know she, what she's doing is for financial gain. But they get upset, right? They caught Paul and Silas, drew him into the market unto the rulers and brought him to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Yeah, what is that, what, what is that code for? They cut into our profit margin, okay? That's, that, that's the message here, okay? Now, here's the question. Everybody ready? All right. Now, please note, that took two hours simply to do what? That took two hours to figure out what the text says. Please note, that's where most, that's where most of the time in preaching should always be, right? Focusing on the text. Now, are you ready? What do we do with this? Now, the quicker we come up with this, the quicker we can be done. All right, so here we go. All right? Before Stacy walks through the door and tells me I'm done preaching, okay? If you were here in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about, okay? All right? So, before I, I'm, I'm rudely interrupted and my microphone is taken away from me, okay? And the broadcast is, comes to an end. I'm joking for those listening online, okay? But we have to ask, what do we do with this text? Now, this is always the next danger in preaching narratives, Right? Because first and foremost, what's the question we always have to ask about narratives? We all know this. The P and D question. 
oh, come on, this is hermeneutical 101. This is like the kids in the nursery know this stuff. Prescriptive or descriptive, right? Okay. Because when we come to a historical narrative, what do we have to ask? Is this prescribing something we're to do or is it simply describing? If it's simply describing, what can I do with simply describing something? Most people preach a lot of things in Acts as being prescriptive and like, this is the way we have to do church. And this is, and you're like, no, you, nothing makes me more irritated than pastors who preach the book of Acts in a prescriptive way. See what the early church did? They had fellowship. They broke bread. We're supposed to do that. Then don't they always leave out the next part? They sold all of their possessions and have in common. Why do you want to make the first part of it prescriptive and leave out the next part? If you're going to say it's prescriptive, then the whole thing is prescriptive to sell all of your property and and bring the money to the church. I'll wait for the offering plate next week to see what it looks like. Guess what? Are you any of you going to follow that? No. Paul preached to midnight. If I try that, what's going to happen? No, you're going to leave or you're going to fire me. Right? But once again, it's such garbage how we use Acts to make it prescriptive only when we like it and then we throw it. Stop that nonsense. You don't want the church to look like the one in Acts. The next time I hear someone say, I want a church that looks like the one in Acts, you're a liar. You wouldn't, ta- you wouldn't tolerate that kind of church in five seconds. Sermons till midnight, selling all of your possessions. You would call it a cult and you would walk away. So don't, don't pretend with your nonsense over spiritual garbage that you want a church like the book of Acts. No, you don't. That stuff drives me crazy. Nobody wants it. Nobody. Right? They fast. They do. Give me a break. Nobody wants to do anything they do in Acts. That's, oh, it drives me crazy. Right? Let's not pretend. So, this always makes it difficult. So we have a passage here. Prescriptive or descriptive? I think we can say that for the most part, it's what? Agreed? All right, now, just because something's descriptive doesn't mean there may not be a lesson in it. Just means we can't do what? Say that we have to do the exact same thing. All right, so, what lessons jump out at you, or lesson jumps out at you, from this passage. Oh, come on. There's got to be at least one lesson. Oh, okay. Oh, I like that. Uh, Robert, that's pretty good. I like that. I'm going to say it in a different way. This demonstrates a danger. And the danger is, it is easy to take the truth of God, the word of God, and to utilize it for one's own personal gain and one's own personal benefit. Do we agree that that's a lesson here? A lot of preaching, you can do the same thing, right? Do it a certain way. You can profit from it. Look, I, I, look, look around. I'm an idiot. I'll be honest. If I changed the way I did things just a little bit, if I didn't preach the way, nobody preaches the text the way we just did. We spent two hours working through every possible question we could come up with. No, I would have preached the entire section in 30 to 40, 35 minutes, giving you three principles, and everybody would have went home with a prayer going, that was a good sermon, Pastor. And if I did that, I probably would be making a salary. True? But I, I'm the one who doesn't do it that way. My own fault. I will acknowledge that. I would acknowledge that, but we all know that that proves something. I can take this, handle it in a certain way, and maybe I'm doing it because I really believe that, but there's always the danger that I could do it that way in order for what? To make money. I'm a a Christian podcaster, right? There's about 2 million Christian podcasts out there. You know what most of the Christian podcasters do? I give you certain episodes, and guess where I put the rest of my episodes? 
behind a paywall on Patreon, and you have to pay five to ten dollars a month to get the rest of my episodes. Now, if I could work that out, I could pull in about a thousand dollars a month. I wouldn't even need to be a pastor. And I could probably pull in $1,000 a month if I worked on it. I mean, we had 236,000 downloads for the month of uh, August. 236,000. We're in the top 10% of all podcasts, not Christian podcasts, of all podcasts. That means we are above over 2 million other podcasts globally coming from this little church. If I could work that, or if I monetize my podcast where I put ads in it, I could possibly come close to pulling in $1,000 a month. I wouldn't even need to be here. And because if I can get close to 1000 that takes care of my house payment. Right? But if I do that, that requires me to do what with the podcast? Am I doing the podcast because I want to minister to people or am I doing a podcast because I want to be ministered to? Ooh, that's, you see how fine a line that is? Everything she says there sounds such a, like a good sermon. Paul is the servant. Did Paul def- describe himself as a servant? A servant of whom? Would Paul say that he's a servant of the Most High God? What, what does she go on to say about Paul? Go ahead and read the words, Emma. You're the demon possessed. Do you think Paul would agree that he shows the way to salvation? Does everything she say is absolutely true? Isn't it weird how I could preach what's true for the wrong reason? And you know what? I have to question that every time I speak. Am I doing it for the right reason? Am I doing it for the right reason? You know what? There's times I've done it for the wrong reason. And there's times I hope I've done it for the right reason. You know what? It's never going to be perfect. Every time a church comes up with a new way of doing things, right reason or wrong reason? And it's hard. Because you know what a pastor's feeling of success is determined by? No, the number of people sitting in here. When people, when the numbers decrease, that's a feeling of failure. When the numbers increase, that's a feeling of success. The only problem is, That's really not the way you're supposed to determine it. However, I could determine the losing of people as a proof of success when that may not be a proof of success either. So in other words, there's really no way to determine success from a human perspective. The only thing I can do is what should determine success. The faithfulness of the message, but the message may be right and still the motive be wrong because we just saw a woman preach a message that sounds pretty right, but is very... Wow, that is confusing, is it not? And I'm going to argue that's your entire Christian life. Because sometimes you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Sometimes you're doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Our Christian life is a complete mess all the time. You know why? Because we're sinners. We're inherently corrupt and inherently conflicted. So our only hope is to follow the way of salvation. I don't know what else the message is in that passage. I don't think the message of this passage is, hey, uh, follow Christ, don't follow men. I don't think that has anything to do with this text. But in the sermon that we're currently reviewing for the podcast, that's exactly what he believes the message is. And I don't see that in any way, shape, or form. I don't think that has anything to do with the text. I would think that the danger is a warning of using scripture and using God's truth for, a, un, for a, an un, ungodly reason. But I have to stop because we're way over time. But I had to finish it. Everybody understand we had to finish it? Okay. If you, th- if you have a different 
view of the text, please let me know because I will be reviewing the rest of the sermon hopefully this afternoon because I'm still curious of where he's going to go in it. All right, let's stop right there. Lord, we come before you this afternoon. I cannot speak for anyone in this room, but for myself. I have spoken your word for wrong reasons. I've spoken your word for right reasons. I will continue to speak them sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. Because if you know anything about me, Lord, is that I am a sinner and I always will be and I can't make any excuse for it, but help me speak the words more so for the right reason than the wrong reason and forgive me for every time that I have done it incorrectly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,